Would you turn with me now, please, once again in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Our text this morning is in verses 12 and 13. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Thank you. I'm going to read it and then pray and then we'll get started the exposition. Now, as uh, Brother Adam said, we finished and completed the exposition of verses 1 to 11. And it seemed good to continue on in the book of Philippians over the next couple of weeks and to preach some of the exhortations that surround it. We have a gospel exhortation or imperative, which means command, a gospel imperative in verses 12 and 13. I want to focus on that gospel imperative this morning. It reads this way. So, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not only when in my presence, but now much more in my absence, bring about or produce, or as some of the translations have it, work out. Bring about your salvation. Bring about your salvation. There's the gospel imperative. Bring about your salvation. With fear and trembling. For God is the one working in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now let's pray and ask God's blessing on the ministry of his holy and infallible word. Father, thank you for the privilege that we have of considering your word together. Thank you for the privilege of expounding it. But we acknowledge that we are 100% and totally dependent on you for blessing. And you are worthy to be glorified. And everyone in this room has spiritual needs and all that are listening on the phone. We all have spiritual needs. We need you. And we want to see your great name glorified. And we have absolutely no power to do that in our own strength. We are totally dependent on you. And we plead with you that you will send us the Holy Spirit this morning and that you will break the bread of life to us. And the Holy Spirit will open our eyes that we would see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. We would see your glory and power in the Christian life. And the wonder of what it is to be a Christian. And that you would be praised. And that if those that are here that don't know you, that you would have mercy and that their life would also be a miracle of grace. We, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I have a little bit of a longer introduction this morning in which I want to try to illustrate the principle of the text. And then, in opening it up and opening up this gospel imperative, I want to start with an explanation, and then I want to get into an exposition. And then finally, I want to close with an exhortation. So we have an explanation, an exposition, and an exhortation from this gospel imperative. <laughs> you think it's funny now, you might not think it's so funny in a few minutes. But, but, uh, but in any event, uh, with regard to this, I want to start with illustration of the principle. Now, the key phrase is the gospel imperative, which is bring about your salvation. Now, let me illustrate the idea that's here. The idea is basically this. Actions have consequences. Character 
has consequences. Patterns of behavior have consequences. And people tend to tell, I have written in my notes, themselves. Let me rephrase, ourselves. That we will be the exception. Oh, I know that this has consequences, but not going to happen to me. We, that I say not you, have the tendency to deceive ourselves. Why is that? Because it is not pleasant. It makes us uncomfortable to face the consequences that we know eventually, typically result from patterns of behavior. Now, let me right start out by, forget preaching, let's start meddling. But I'm only doing this to illustrate a principle. Only to illustrate. Take the man. You know, it's kind of hard when you're preaching to 30 people. To just, if you've got a crowd of 1,000 people, people probably don't feel like they're being singled out in a, in a crowd of a thousand people. You've got 30 people, you think, he's talking about me. Listen, let me tell you, that's not my intention. In fact, I actually even altered some of these illustrations so people wouldn't think I'm talking about you. I don't know. No, I don't. All right, okay, you get the idea. I mean, when you start talking like this and you're talking to 30 people, if I have something to say to somebody and I have a problem with them, what should I do? Should I stand up off the pulpit behind the protection of plexiglass and, and attack them? No! If I have love to people, what I should go talk to them privately in love and be praying for them before I do. Agreed? So it's not my intention to go attacking people off the pulpit behind the protection of plexiglass this morning. So these illustrations, as far as I know, are not aimed at anybody. Except maybe myself, which is always safer, right? So here's the thing. Take the man who smokes three packs of cigarettes a day. Now, that's not aimed at you, believe me. If you're smoking three packs of cigarettes a day, I don't know it. I'm not aware of it. So I pulled it out. But what do you think? Actions have consequences. So the guy's smoking three packs of cigarettes a day for 20 years, and now he has a chronic cough. And yet he convinces himself that his smoking habit will never reduce his lifespan. Right? Not going to happen to him. Not going to happen to me. Right. It's not going to happen to me. Won't happen to me. Or let me, so if I'm not preaching against anybody, except maybe myself, let me get more personal. Last year when I came here, I said to myself, Greg, and you know this because I said it openly, if you don't get the excess weight off of your body, eventually, you're going to experience the consequences of your obesity. Sooner or later, it's going to catch up with you. You're not going to get away with it. And one or more of the health problems that typically result from excessive amounts of body fat are going to come to you. I said that to myself. Why did I say that to myself? Because it was true. Now, you know, I admitted it openly. And I asked you to pray for me. Remember? Right. There's a second example. Let me give you a third example. When my son came of age, now he would hate me for saying this because my kids used to hate to ever be mentioned off the pulpit. You understand that? So any preacher listening to me, don't do what I'm doing right now, please. Don't, don't, don't preach about your kids. They hate it. Right, but he's not around to hate it. He's probably not going to listen to this. But and it's not a, anything bad that he did. So, but it, they just hate to be mentioned off the pulpit. And I, I guess if I was a kid, preacher's kid, I'd hate to be the, the example too. But here's the point: when my son became 21 years of age, I warned him. I said, "Son, this is not Bedford Falls." Now, anybody here never watched the movie Wonderful Life? You don't know where Bedford Falls is? Right? Does anybody who doesn't know what I'm talking about? You know what? I think you're the exception. Right? I said, son, this is not Bedford Falls. 
This is not 1945, and you're not George Bailey. And if you drink alcohol, son, and drive, actions have consequences. It won't be your friend Bert the Cop that pulls you over and says, Hey, George, I saw your car plowed into that tree down there. You all right? Your lip's bleeding, George. It's not going to be what's going to happen to you in, uh, forget the year he turned 21. But it was in the, somewhere in the teens. Add 21 to 87, what do you get? 87, 97, 07, oh. 2000. Really? He was 87, 97, 07. He was already 2008. See, I thought it was, it was like 2015. It was, it was uh, 12 years. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, I'm getting old. Anyway, when he turned 21 in 2008, we had this conversation. This is not Bedford Falls. Actions have consequences. If you go drinking and driving, it's not going to be Bert the Cop your friend that pulls you over, what's going to happen to you? If you drink alcohol and drive, it won't be your friend Bert. It'll be breathalyzer, possibly loss of your license. And if you do it repeatedly, criminal charges and jail. And if you cause bodily harm, probably felony charges and prison, maybe for a long time. That's why I told him. Actions have consequences. So I said, I may not be able to stop you from going drinking with your friends. But if you do it, leave your car downtown and take an Uber home. Don't drive home. Now, I can tell you don't get drunk because that's sin. But I'm warning you as a dad, don't get in your car and drive if you put alcohol in your mouth. This is not 1945, and it's not Bedford Falls, and actions have consequences. You with me? You follow what I'm saying? Actions have consequences. So, here's the point. If you smoke three packs of cigarettes a day, eventually it's going to have consequences. If you live without doing anything about it, 70 pounds overweight, like I was when I came here, actions are going to have consequences. If you get behind a wheel, drinking alcohol, eventually actions are going to have consequences. And you could tell yourself, you know, hey, I'm fine. I could drive. Or you could tell yourself, hey, you know, what typically happens to people that are 70 pounds overweight not going to happen to me. You could tell yourself that. You could tell yourself I could smoke three packs of cigarettes a day. It's not going to bother me. You could tell yourself that. But you're not going to change reality. Actions have consequences. And sooner or later, the consequences of those actions are going to catch up with people. Now, that's the principle that's behind this text. And I said, that's kind of a longer introduction. But it's the idea that actions have consequences that's behind this text. And now, the consequences that I talked about were pretty much bad consequences. But it's not only bad actions that have bad consequences. The point of this text is that in the realm of spiritual things, in the realm of religion, actions have consequences. And the way you live on earth has an impact upon what happens in eternity. Bring about your own Salvation. Actions have consequences. Live on earth for your own eternal good. How you live your life on earth has consequences that last forever. That's what he's saying. And just like you should take to heart that a pattern of smoking or a pattern of staying overweight or, or a pattern of drinking and driving is going to have consequences, so also in the spiritual religious realm. The way you live your life on earth has consequences that last forever. Now, that brings me then to the three things I wanted to say. You get the idea of the text right now. 
Let me give you an explanation. What is he talking about when he says, bring about your own salvation? Surely that requires an explanation. You can't just stand up and say, bring about your own salvation, folks, and not explain it. So I want to start with my explanation. First of all, notice very carefully, to whom is this addressed? See the text? He says, verse 12, So then, my beloved, even as you have always obeyed, would you say that this gospel imperative, bring about your salvation, is addressed to unconverted people or converted people? Yes, very good. You have judged rightly. You have judged rightly. This is not addressed to the unconverted who are in a state of sin. He is not telling sinners in the state of sin, bring about your own salvation. Work your way to conversion and heaven. That is not what he said. It's not addressed to the unconverted. It's addressed to those who are in a state of grace. Those who have already been saved from sin. They're already converted. Beloved, as you have always obeyed. Therefore, clearly, this gospel imperative is not about justification. It's not about the ungodly getting right with God. It's not about being converted. It's addressed to people who have already been saved and already been converted, already been justified on the ground of Christ alone by means of faith alone because of grace alone. So then, beloved, it's not talking about sinners working their own deliverance from sin through their own good works. That's not what it means. So that's the first part of the explanation. If you want to understand what it means, ask yourself, to whom is this addressed? It's addressed to people already saved. Secondly, consider the meaning. What is he talking about when he says to Christians that he loves produce or bring about your own salvation. Wait a minute. Didn't you say they're already saved? Yes. So how are they going to bring about their salvation when they're already saved? Uh-huh. Let's just wait a second, will you? Let's start with what it means to bring about. What is he talking about? Well, I'm not going to go through the study in detail where you look up all the places in the New Testament where this word translated bring about or do or produce is used. I just want to read one text to you to show you the idea that, that it, what it means here. In Romans chapter 5, the same word is used, verse 3. And he says, not only so, but we also glory or rejoice in tribulations, knowing, not feeling, knowing, that tribulation, and then here comes our word, works or brings about patience. And then patience, approvedness, and approvedness, hope. Tribulation brings about, it works, it produces patience. Now oh, wait a minute. Tribulation doesn't in and of itself have power to produce anything, does it? Tribulation is the means that God uses to work patience, approvedness, and hope in godly people who respond to their afflictions and tribulations in a godly manner. Some people, tribulation produces bitterness, and bitterness, anger, and anger, despair. In some people, tribulation is the occasion of destroying their happiness. But his point is that tribulation is the means. It, it is the means of bringing about 
patience in those who respond to that tribulation in a godly manner. So like tribulation brings about patience, so we Christians are to bring about our salvation. Does that make sense? Now, the second thing is, he says, bring about your salvation. Now, what is he talking about? I thought we were already saved. Well, if you study all the ways that the idea of salvation, are, the idea is presented in the New Testament and Old Testament, you will discover that the scripture speaks of salvation as a past experience, a present experience, and a future experience. So that Christians have been saved, Christians are being saved, and Christians will be saved. So what is he saying to them? You who already have been saved, bring about your future salvation at the second coming of Christ. Who will appear a second time to them that wait for him apart from sin unto salvation. Salvation from the wrath to come at the second coming of Christ. Eternal deliverance from that wrath at his second coming. Bring about your salvation from the wrath to come at the second coming of Christ. So what he means to say is this. Live for your own eternal good. Conduct yourself in such a way that your lifestyle serves as the means of bringing about your complete salvation from sin and wrath at the second coming of Christ. This is a gospel imperative. It is a call to persevere in gospel holiness, in progressive sanctification, in a life of gospel obedience to God, to persevere in a life of willing and working to please God, a life of gospel holiness, progressive sanctification, persevere in it. Because such a life, is the, has consequences. It is the means of bringing about your own eternal deliverance at the second coming of Christ from the wrath to come. The way a person lives on earth has eternal consequences. The only lifestyle, there's only one that leads to rescue from the wrath to come. And that's the way of gospel holiness. Gospel holiness is absolutely necessary. It is indispensable. Question. What is the only lifestyle that brings about eternal salvation at the second coming of Christ? Answer. A lifestyle of gospel holiness. It's the one and only lifestyle that brings about your salvation when Christ returns. Does that make sense? How do you bring about your salvation? By living a holy life. How do you bring about your salvation? By persevering in obedience to God. How do you bring about your salvation? By persevering in progressive sanctification. In willing and working to please God the rest of your life. Follow that? Does that make sense to you? So just like a lifestyle of smoking has consequences. And a lifestyle of obesity has consequences. And drunk driving as a pattern, has consequences. So also, a life of gospel holiness has consequences. It brings about your eternal salvation. That's my explanation. One other thing. In terms of the explanation, I want you to notice the tone of this. Is it this? You people! 
That's not the way I read it. So then, you keep... So then, beloved, my beloved. This has the tone of affection and esteem. And so this gospel imperative, this call to persevere in gospel holiness, because that lifestyle is the one and only lifestyle that brings about eternal salvation... It is not brought to God's people in a demeaning way or a critical way. The tone is one of affection and esteem. It grows out of deep affection and goodwill. He calls them to a life of persevering in gospel holiness out of love in a loving way. He highly esteems and appreciates them. He's very fond of them. As I said last time, they're very special to him. And so the fact that he exhorts them to persevere in a lifestyle of gospel obedience doesn't mean that he doesn't highly esteem them. To the contrary, this exhortation is couched in love and esteem. Now then, that's my explanation of what it's about. Now let's get to the exposition. With regard to the exposition of the text, he associates perseverance in gospel holiness, or he associates gospel holiness with three realities. Three things that really are striking to me. He connects this imperative to live a holy life and persevere in it with genuine conversion, and its fruits, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed. Secondly, he connects it with gospel fear. Not only does he say, work out your salvation, bring about your salvation just as you have always obeyed. He says, bring about your salvation with fear and trembling. He connects it with gospel fear. And thirdly, he connects it with omnipotent divine grace. Bring about your salvation just as you've always obeyed genuine conversion and its fruits. With gospel fear, for it is God working in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Omnipotent Divine grace. So he says, bring about your salvation. And he connects this gospel imperative with genuine conversion and a life of gospel obedience, living in gospel fear, and the omnipotent grace of God at work in your hearts. You see that in the text? You see it? Yay? No? All right, first. Consider with me genuine conversion and how it's how this call to persevere in holiness. This is what I would call the motivation. Gospel fear is the manner, and God's omnipotent grace, I don't know what to call it, so I have two words, but they had to start with M. So the motivation is genuine conversion and its fruits. The manner is gospel fear, the miracle, the mystery, omnipotent grace at work in your heart. First of all, look with me at the motivation. How does he motivate them to persevere in a life of gospel holiness? He commends them and encourages them. So this Philippian church was composed of godly believers. And they had lived a life of gospel obedience to God. They had walked. They were already converted. They had obeyed the gospel. And since they had, ever since, they had lived in gospel obedience to God's revealed will. They repented from their sin. They believed the gospel. They lived in compliance with God's moral law by God's grace, his moral law, that it was written on their hearts. So how can he say this, that this entire church achieves sinless perfection? Of course not. Well, how can he say 
You always obeyed. He means that they always walked in gospel obedience, that evangelical righteousness reigned, that is ruled in them, produced by the Holy Spirit in them, and pleasing to God. Obedience reigned in them, even though sin remained in them. And that obedience that reigned in them ever since their conversion was produced by God and pleasing to God. And he uses that reality not only to commend them, but also to motivate them to persevere in a life of gospel holiness. Just as you have always obeyed, not only when I was around, but now much more. It's not about me looking. It's about in the sight of God. Bring about your salvation. Persevere in a life of gospel holiness. In a life of gospel obedience to God. That's what he tells them. Note well, dear people, how he motivates them. He uses their pattern after their genuine conversion of gospel obedience and reigning obedience to motivate them to persevere in that very same gospel obedience all of their lives. Now, my purpose of what I'm saying right now is not to attack any individuals, just to get this clear and straight, because I don't want us going down this road. I have heard, I don't want to say where, when, who, that's not the point. I've heard this text preached this way. So then, my beloved, even as you have always obeyed, if obedience does not reign in you, you're not a Christian. Follow? If obedience does not reign in you, you're not a Christian. Now, First of all, is that true? Is it true that if obedience doesn't reign in you and sin reigns in you, that you're unsaved? Is that correct? It is correct. That's absolutely right. Is that what this text says to the Philippians? Is that the way that Paul motivates the Philippians in this text? Yes or no? No. It's not what this text says. He doesn't say to them, you Philippian professing Christians, if obedience doesn't reign in you, you're not Christians. That's not what he said. That is absolutely not what he said. That may be true, but that's not what Paul said. That's not the way he motivates them. He doesn't motivate them that way. He motivates them this way. So then, my beloved, even as you have always obeyed. That's what this text says. Doesn't say this text doesn't say, if obedience doesn't reign in you, you're unsaved. That may be true, but that's not what it says. It says, just as you have always obeyed, obedience has reigned in you. Not sinless perfection, but genuine conversion and its fruit of gospel obedience has been the pattern of your life. I saw it with my own eyes when I was there, he says. But I'm not there to see it anymore. How much more while I'm not looking? Persevere in that gospel holiness. Live the one and only lifestyle that will bring about your eternal salvation when Jesus comes as the means. He uses encouragement and commendation to motivate them to persevere in holiness. That's how he motivates. And brothers and sisters, that is the way that this should be preached in the Christian church. The Christian duty to live a holy life should be proclaimed and pressed on God's people under the new covenant like Paul does out of love and with positive motivation that recognizes and appreciates and commends the gospel obedience of the saints. 
That's what's in this text. Do you see it there? Is he preaching salvation by works? That you're justified on the ground of your own virtue? Good grief, no. Is he saying that these Philippians attained sinless perfection? Aye, 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 absolutely not. But he is saying that genuine conversion marked those people and its fruits and their past history of a sincere gospel obedience reigning in them ought to motivate them to press on and to continue to live that way for the rest of their lives. Right? Okay. So now let's look at the manner in which he tells them to do it. The manner in which he says to do it. How does he tell them to bring about their salvation? With what demeanor or attitude or emotional posture does he tell them to bring about their salvation? See what he puts it. Bring about your salvation, persevere in gospel holiness with fear and trembling. Well, surely now I can start pointing my finger at you and scare you. Okay, so why should we be afraid? What are we supposed to be afraid of? Why should we pursue gospel holiness with an emotive disposition of fear and trembling, what's the reason for this? It's talking about the fact that we should persevere in gospel holiness with vigilance by being alert. What is fear? Fear is a response to danger. And we should persevere in gospel holiness in this life with the reality that we are in danger. We are constantly in danger because we live in a hostile world and we have the devil as a roaring lion running around tempting to destroy and seeking whom he may gobble up. But well, how can I illustrate living with a sense of danger, with genuine gospel fear? And we're in danger because we're in a world that's no friend to grace. And I thought, now that I'm living in the country, and I can look out my window, I can see a big long field, and not every night and every morning, but almost every morning and almost every night, the deer come. And they come to eat in that field. And I can watch them right out of the living room window. And you know, I do. Now, how can I picture to you the way these deer eat? We'll put it this way. They eat with what appears to me to be an alertness, a constant awareness of danger. Now, why should these deer think that they're in danger? Well, because I can hear the coyotes howling at night. And so, how do I describe this? I'm going to be a deer now, okay? A little deer. A little deer. And you all see this deer here? Got to get down on all fours to be a deer, huh? So this is the way the deer, the deer eat like this. Take a couple of bites Here's a sit. Following this? It's the way the deer eat. Why are they eating like that? Because they realize there's danger. There's coyotes or coy wolves or whatever it is, and you hear them at night. When those deer are eating, they're conscious of the danger that's there. You get the point? They're eating with fear and trembling because they're in danger in that field. And they know they're in danger in that field. And they watch them eat that way. Did you ever seen a deer eat like that? You agree with my interpretation? 
They're cautious, right? They're alert, right? They're vigilant, right? Why? Because them coyotes in them hills. Isn't that, am I, am I correct in that interpretation? I mean, I'm kind of new to the country. Am I reading these deer right? Oh, yeah. Similarly, brothers and sisters, we are in danger. We're not out of danger. As long as we're in this life, we're in the danger of the world and danger from the devil and danger from the remaining sin in our own hearts. We need to watch. We need to pray. Because we are in danger. And when we pursue and persevere in gospel holiness, as long as we live in this world, which is no friend to grace, we need to do so with the awareness of the danger of our current surroundings in this present life. I'm not saying we're in danger of losing our salvation. Good grief. He's simply saying that we shouldn't live with an arrogant sense that we are in no danger of being tempted or pressured to fall into soul-grieving sins. Right? With fear and trembling like the deer eat in the field. Finally, I want to get to what to me was the most amazing part of the whole text. Right? So you have this gospel imperative. He connects it with a motivation, which is your past obedience to God and your genuine conversion and your holy life you've already lived. He connects it with a manner an emotive disposition, which is the realization that we are in danger. Gospel fear. And finally, look at this. Verse 13. It connects it with power and effectiveness. And this is a great, awesome mystery, or even a miracle. Look what he says. Bring about your salvation appropriate gospel fear because of the present danger of a hostile world, flesh, and devil. For God is the one working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We are completely dependent on God to live a life of gospel obedience and to persevere in holiness. We cannot do it in our own strength. We do not do it in our own strength or wisdom. God is the one who produces these things in us. He works in us to will, that is the resolve to persevere in gospel holiness and to work that is the effort to persevere in gospel holiness. The resolve and the effort come from God who produces these things in us. It's all of God and all of grace from beginning to end and to God be the glory. The Christian life is a mystery. If I'm resolved to please the Lord, he produced that resolve in me. If I'm putting out an effort to honor and please and obey God, he produced that effort in me. That's a mystery. And it's a miracle. My resolve is a miracle because it's produced by the supernatural power of God. My effort is a miracle because it's produced by the omnipotence of God's grace. He works in me to will and to work. The Christian life is a mystery and a miracle. It's not in our own strength. It's in the power of God. And this is exactly what he promised to do. I'm going to read you two Old Testament texts about the blessings that God's people experience under the New Covenant. And this is exactly what God promises that he will do. 
We read in Jeremiah 32, verses 38 to 40, And they will be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart, one way, that they may fear me always, for their own good and the good of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good and I will put my fear in their hearts. Why? So that they will not turn away from me. If we have the fear of God in our hearts, it's because God put it there. And if in the fear of God we want to please God and we strive to please God, it's because God put that wanting and striving there. He works it in us. And it wouldn't be there if he didn't work it there. But it is there because he does it. The Christian is a living mystery and a walking miracle. And listen to this. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27 says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart. Regeneration. Put a new spirit within you. A transformation from wrath to grace. Genuine conversion. Creating gospel repentance and faith in dead sinners and giving them spiritual life. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. Give you a heart of flesh. He's going to do a moral work. Genuine conversion. A heart transplant. And the people of God under the new covenant will be characterized by having new hearts with God's law written on it. And then, listen to this. And. And. Not just your conversion and regeneration, but here you go. An entire life of progressive gospel holiness. And. 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 Bless God. And. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to obey my ordinances. I will put the Holy Spirit in you and I will cause you to obey me. He works in us in fulfillment of these promises to will, that is to have the resolve, desire, intention, and work to put in the effort to please him. I will put my spirit within you. The Christian life is a great mystery and a great miracle. Genuine gospel holiness is produced by God himself in fulfillment of his promise. The lifestyle that is the means of bringing about eternal life is produced by God. He produces the resolve and the intent and the desire. He produces the effort to please him. He produces the obedience. I will put my spirit in you and cause you to do it. And that's what he does. And that's why, Christian, you have always obeyed. And that's why he exhorts you to persevere in a lifestyle of gospel holiness, which is the one and only lifestyle that brings about eternal salvation. Yeah, I know. Right? Now what do you say? Too good to be true, right? The best thing about it is it's true. It's amazing. I don't know what else to say. Except this, so I'll say it. Final closing exhortation. I gave you my explanation. This is addressed to Christians. It's a call to persevere in gospel holiness. I gave you my exposition. This call to gospel holiness is motivated by a commendation about a lifestyle in the past of genuine conversion and its fruits. The manner that should characterize it is one of gospel fear that recognizes the danger in which we live in this world. And 
it's, it's a mystery, it's a great miracle because the power that produces it is the power of God's omnipotent grace working in us. Now, if you're not a Christian, what do I say to you this morning? Look, you must have some interest in spiritual things or you wouldn't be here, you wouldn't be listening on the phone. And I'm happy for that. And I, I want to see you blessed. And I'm going to tell you right now, the problem you have is this. You cannot possibly, nobody can, please God in your own strength. You have to get right with God. You have to have a new heart. And you don't get right with God by pursuing a lifestyle of gospel holiness. No. The only way you can get right with God is to repent from your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to be genuinely and truly converted. And then, you also will be, he will put the Holy Spirit in you when you repent and believe. You will receive the Holy Spirit. And you will become, for the rest of your life, a living, walking mystery and miracle. And God will never stop working in He'll work in you the rest of your life and bring you to glory. And, and my dear friend, there's no other way for you to get there if God doesn't work in you. You can't do it yourself on your own. There's no possible way. Neither can we. We're not. We're not claiming to. Which brings me to the Christians. Dear brothers and sisters, I entreat you in the meekness and gentleness of Christ, take this to heart. The way you live on earth has eternal consequences. Let your past transformation and life spur you to persevere in gospel holiness. In resolve and effort to please God, which he produces in you. Christian, dear Christian, you are a living, walking mystery and miracle. You're wanting to please God. God produced that in you. You're striving to please God. God produced that in you. He gave you a new heart. He put his spirit within you. He put his fear in your heart. And his spirit who dwells in you works in you to want to please him, to intend to please him, to resolve to please him, and to strive to please him. You're doing all that because God's doing it in you. Praise God. Bless God for his omnipotent grace that began a good work in you and will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Bless God. Praise him. Adore him. And finally, be on the alert. Christian, seek not yet repose. You are in the midst of foes. Watch and pray. Remember the way those deer, if you have deer around you, you watch them eating. See how they eat. The sense of danger. And remember, you're in danger here from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Don't let your guard down. Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation and sin. Your life is an amazing mystery, a wonderful miracle of divine grace. This is a call to persevere in gospel holiness. It's a gospel imperative. And just remember this. Gospel holiness is a mystery and a miracle. It's all of God and all of grace. And to God be the praise and the glory.